The Not Most People podcast is for those who despise mediocrity, reject the status quo, and challenge conventional wisdom. Join host Bradley Roth and discover what separates the winners, outliers, and standouts from most people. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Not Most People podcast. This is your host, Bradley, and this is the show for those allergic to mediocrity, groupthink, and following the status quo. And before we get into today's full-length guest episode, I would like to remind you guys quickly of my one ask, and that is whether you are a first-time listener or a repeat listener, that if you get value out of this episode or any other episode, if you learn something, if it helps you think differently, if you're entertained, that you help me spread the word by sharing the podcast in some way. That could be on social media, that could be shooting it uh, in a message to a friend or however you want to do that. But that is my one ask. I put a lot into this show and I don't run ads. I'm hoping to keep it that way. And I will do that as long as you guys continue to help me grow. So that is, like I said, my one ask. And if you want to go above and beyond that, a review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify would also be greatly appreciated. And beyond that, the one kind of big thing going on with Not Most People besides the podcast is the Not Most People Alliance. That is the online community of Not Most People. So if you want to get connected with other people who kind of are like-minded, who really think for themselves or trying to do big things, that's going to be the best place to do that. And you can find information on that and everything else in the show notes. But without further ado, we're going to get into today's episode, which I'm really excited about. We have Ryan Horst on the show. Ryan, welcome to Not Most People. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, bro. I know this is your baby and you're trusting me as a guest on here, so I really appreciate it. Of course, man. I know uh, I know we're going to you know, bring some magic to the people here today. So for those of you listening, a little bit about Ryan. Ryan has founded and operated a cryptocurrency consulting company and community that currently sits at around 500 members and has also mentored hundreds of individuals through their one-on-one mentorship program called BCAP, which actually my wife happens to be a part of. Hey. Hey. And uh, <laughs> he's spoken on stages all over the country and even internationally on the importance of blockchain and crypto technology, and has shared the stage with brilliant minds such as Damon John, Jordan Belfort, Elena Cardone, Patrick Hillman, Akon, Tori Lanes, and many others. So quite a, like, a variety of of names there, but I know uh, I've heard of most of those people. But I want to kind of rewind first because crypto is kind of like this new thing, very recent for most people. I would say most people started hearing about it in 2017. It's been around a little bit longer, but it hasn't really been taken seriously until recently. But before that, like what was your, like you didn't grow up being like, I want to be a crypto person because it wasn't even a thing. Right. And so I think you, Kind of we're going a more traditional path and then you switch gears. Can you can you talk about that? Yeah. So when so I'll start off in in high school, um, because that's kind of where my mindset started shifting towards money a little bit. Hmm. Um, so in high school, I started thinking about stocks and you know, I, I started thinking about the internet and the dot-com boom, and I was like, you know, I really feel like I was born too late, right? Mm-hmm. In order to be able to take advantage of this great wealth transfer that took place with the dot-com boom. 
Um, because in my mind, investing in Google or Facebook or something like that was a completely just obvious move to make, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. I'm using it every day. So, like, you know, it's a little different. Yeah. Um, but I knew deep down that with the rapid innovation and in technology that's taking place in our world, that there's no way that that was the very last opportunity for something like that to happen. Mm. So... I bring that up not because cryptocurrency and, and and myself were like, you know, starting to become a thing back then in 2012 when I was graduating. Um, but I bring it up because that's a recurring theme of something that I was looking for in my life, mm-hmm. just keeping my eyes open to the idea of something like that coming around. Um, but then I ended up going off to college at uh, University of South Florida for to get my degree in biomedical sciences. And my goal was to then graduate and get a job as a doctor and then one day open up my own clinic. Um, my dad's an entrepreneur, so I always kind of had that idea of like owning my own thing, being in yep. control of my own schedule. Um, and I saw that it was a reality because of him, you know, which I'm extremely blessed for. Mm-hmm. And then as I was gearing up to graduate, I was starting to have thoughts around like, you know, is this really my dream? Is this really what I want to do? Or am I just doing this because it's kind of a path to go down? And, you know, I grew up with the idea that whatever I want to do in life, I want to make sure that I'm helping other people and I'm benefiting the lives of others uh, because that's something that's very fulfilling to me. And then my parents ended up telling me that, you know, you'll always have a job if you're in the medical field, because Mm -hmm. there's always more people being born, more people getting sick, and then you can take care of people. Uh, But then after actually shadowing a surgeon, um, Dr. Gashard, I think that was his name. And uh, I started to realize that it really wasn't for me. Um, I noticed that he kind of was just doing the same surgeries all the time. And while they're very complex, very important things that he was doing, I need a lot of variability Mm. in what I'm doing on a regular basis. I need different tasks and activities. Like I can't, I, I noticed that I can't be the type of person that does the same thing for 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And, you know, that's just never been a lifestyle that I could envision myself having. Mm-hmm. Um, and I noticed that when I was actually in high school and my mom picked me up from school one day and she was like, what's going on? You don't seem like you're yourself today. And usually I just kind of, you know, brush it, off, brush yeah. it off. Like, Oh, it's nothing like whatever. But this time I just went up to my mom and I told her, you know, I feel like I do the same thing every single day. I go to school, I go to basketball practice afterwards, and then I come home, I play video games, and then I go to sleep. I do the same thing every single day, and it's just wearing on me. Mm. It's like, you know? How old were you at that point? Like 17 or something like that? Yeah, 16, 17. Yeah. And my mom, and that's exactly it. My mom was like, you know, you're way too young to be feeling that way. Mm. And that kind of gave me this idea that like, that's just kind of the lifestyle that people get entwined with and then they're okay with because, well, some people like that consistency. Yeah. I noticed from a very early age that that's that's just not me. I can't Mm -hmm. really do it. Yeah. That's, it's funny. I like deeply resonate with that 
in terms of the kind of same thing day after day. Uh, I say I'm unemployable because of that. Like I can't go do the same thing like day after day. Like you said, 10 to 15 years. Like, I don't know if I could do the same thing for like 10 to 15 days, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like, and I think it's just kind of like, it's an interesting nature versus nurture thing. I think some people are just wired that way and born that way. And for me, I, I don't know if I realized that that early at like 16 or 17, but fairly early on, um, maybe like around 20, early twenties, I said the same thing. I said, man, I can't imagine going and like having every day kind of like living a groundhog day life, you know, where every day is the same over and over. And yeah, some people love that. Like they need that. And if there's too much variety, it really throws them off. Um, but yeah, I think it's the the most important thing is like figuring out which of those people you are. Maybe you're in the middle. Maybe you like need periods of certain like kind of consistency and then periods of like to break it up, you know, or or you're at like one end of the spectrum like us where you need like constant variation. Right. And that's why I always like, even for, I started out as a fitness guy. Anytime I did something besides CrossFit, I'd get bored in like a week. Cause the thing with CrossFit is like every day you go in, it's like totally different. And so that was actually the thing I think that really like made me realize that I need kind of this constant variation, but yeah, it's, I kind of felt like you were really speaking to me there. Yeah. It's, it's a double-edged sword though, really. It because is. <laughs> once you're in full control of your own schedule and mm-hmm. you battle the consistency, it's the consistency that you need in order to be successful and get all the things done that you need to get done on a regular basis to have a yep. routine. And when you're that person that fights that, it's like you have to kind of rewire your brain to view it in a more positive light so that you can get into those routines and get into those consistencies because there's no one forcing you to be in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, um, I think it kind of correlates with there's dreamers and then there's like kind of doers, right? Like there's the, the visionaries and then there's the people who are like, just give me the list and I'll get it done kind of thing, but they need the direction. And so, is definitely that challenge. Again, we're looking at like both ends of a spectrum where if you're that dreamer, you're like up in the clouds, you're thinking like you're kind of all over the place almost not in like a helter skelter way, but like you, it's, you can't just like tunnel vision on one little thing. Like you're Mm -hmm. looking at all these different opportunities and that kind of thing. And then, um, so again, I think it just comes back to that self-awareness and figuring out what you are and not most people kind of like what you were saying, your, your parents were kind of gently pushing you towards this path that you're like, oh, it's safe. It's reliable. I'll always have a job. And I think so many people kind of get like swept into that mode of thinking, even though that's like not naturally who they are. Mm -hmm. And then it's at what point do you, do you wake up to that? Like you, you kind of noticed it very early, but a lot of people, this is where we see like midlife crisis or quarter life crisis now where you like wake up one day and you're like, oh crap. Like, I don't like this. <laughs> this isn't me. But then the further along you are, the harder it is to kind of change that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you kind of immediately, like you graduated, but it was like towards right before you graduated that you kind of had this revelation that I want to do something different. Yeah. So um, in my, when my junior year was starting in college, I started to have thoughts around like, okay, college is coming to an end. Um mm-hmm. You know, you got two more years. It was like my midlife crisis in college, right? (laughs) Right. It was like, oh, shit, uh, we're coming up to that point here. We're at that midway point. Um, It's time time to start, like, you know, evaluating what you're getting yourself into. Um, 
And I started to have questions around if it's what I really wanted to do at that time. Um, and then that's kind of when I started to realize I need to start shadowing people, work in a hospital, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And then after actually being in the environment, I noticed that it wasn't an environment that was conducive for me. Um, I've noticed that I personally can be uh, affected pretty significantly by my environment. Mm-hmm. So being in an environment like the hospital um, or a place where people are going when they're sick, it's just, it didn't really align with myself um, mm-hmm. because people don't typically get excited to go see a doctor. Um, <laughs> yeah, very rarely. And I really wanted to be in a role where people are excited to see me every mm-hmm. time they see me. Um, so then uh, kind of to fast forward past that, then I graduated college and uh, I took the first opportunity that kind of fell into my plate which was a minimum wage sales job at LA Fitness mm. because I decided that I was going to do medical sales, but I needed to get experience in sales in order to be able to do that. So got a job getting minimum wage, uh, which I also kind of did on purpose because I I think that in life, it's very important to find reference points mm. and, and to find extremes. Yeah. And to know what it's like to make, I think at the time, $7 and 15 cents an hour was an incredible reference point for me to be able to fully appreciate when I'm making a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, so that was one reason I took the job aside from just the sales experience that I could get. And then, uh, four months of that. And then I actually got an offer to work in medical sales. Uh, I landed my first interview because it was very hard to get interviews. And then they were inviting me back. They really liked me. And then I was talking with somebody that had been doing medical sales for 18 years. And he's like, I mean, you can do it, man. You're going to make really awesome money, but be prepared to miss your kids' baseball games, your Mm. kids' birthdays. Like, Be prepared to, you know, this is your new life. And I was like, nah, this ain't it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this isn't it. I I I don't live to work, right? right. So I work to live and and I wasn't gonna compromise on that. So I ended up getting a job as a personal trainer uh because I've been very heavily into fitness for since I was 18. Mm. And I thought of it as a good way to get myself into a leadership position. Um, to where I'm guiding people. And it was a good chance for me to start to teach individuals because I've always known since I was in biology class in in college that I had a a gift for being able to communicate concepts to individuals in a more rudimentary way that they could understand, um, especially more complex topics, Mm -hmm. because I was able to get some of the classmates that I had and some of my peers to understand topics in biology that the teacher couldn't. Mm -hmm. So I was like, you know, maybe teaching is kind of like something that I'm good at and that I could kind of yeah. move in that direction. But then I was like, ah, oh, teachers don't really make much money. In the traditional <laughs> right? sense, right? Yeah. yeah. Traditional teaching doesn't make a whole lot of money. Um, so then uh, I kind of like honed in on that and I thought personal training would be a great thing for me to do to kind of, you know, explore that side of being a leader and teaching and helping people in a way that uh, was really beneficial to their lives. And so I did that. It also gave me the scheduler freedom that I wanted um, because I, I was wanting to travel around the U.S. and I could take time off pretty easily as a personal mm-hmm. trainer. Um, so I did that. 
And then that gave me an opportunity to explore the U.S., did a cross-country road trip, went to New York, did uh, actually like two cross-country road trips. And then it, the most important thing, though, is that I didn't have to focus on work when I wasn't in work mm-hmm. for personal training. So that freed up a lot of brain space for other things. So yeah. I spent a lot of this time on my computer at home. I had quit playing video games at the time. Um, and I filled that time with studying different things, learning more about the body to become a better personal trainer, uh, learning about finances, understanding stocks, learning a little bit about real estate. And then crypto was a big one that I just honed in on and just dove deep down the rabbit hole of crypto. And uh, because my friend Matt Miller told me about it and after diving into it and making some money in it right away uh, on accident, I was like, there must be more to this than I realize. Mm -hmm. So then I did some studying on that and I found a video called Inside a Secret Chinese Bitcoin Mine. And (laughs) when I was watching that, it it came up to this clip of the video that was mentioning that this Bitcoin mine pays $80,000 a month for in electricity bills. And then that just sparked something in my mind, which is a thought that I think everybody should have more of, which is what do they know that I don't? Mm. So then that led me down this deep dive over the last five years of learning everything you can about <laughs> blockchain and crypto, DeFi and NFTs um, until uh, everything crashed. And then I had to try to figure out what I was going to do from there. <laughs> wow. So there's several things there that I could highlight. First one being how you talked about taking that job that you kind of knew wasn't going to pay a lot or that you wouldn't necessarily love it to provide contrast or motivation almost for other things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's super powerful because without like without the bad, you can never appreciate the good. Like we live in a world of polarity, like it's all contrast, right? Something's only good in relation to something else that's bad. Exactly. And so for me, like I remember I've, I worked at Subway in college for a bit and it was, man, I hated that job. <laughs> I got out of every shift I could. Uh, I came home smelling like the subway bread, you know, like it was just, and it was kind of like just monotonous. Right. But like, I think about that when I think about like, man, I need like, if, if I'm having a bad day or if I'm like doubting kind of what I'm doing now, I have that to look back on and kind of be grateful about. So I think that's a, a hugely important point, but then also what you were saying, and I'm just, because re- there's so many things you said that like really resonate and, um, a lot of things that you said you realized about yourself by trying these different things, learning these different things and that self-awareness. And I think that is such an underrated thing in the general population. Like if you get into the kind of the personal development circles or like high achievers, a lot of them talk about self-awareness and how important that is. And you kind of said like going through it, you're like, I realize I need like this kind of challenge. I don't work well in this environment, like, and all those things. And so now you're able to move towards what like you actually want and you know that you want, because I think a lot of people, most people will move towards something like without that awareness that they really, that's not what they want. Mm-hmm. Like we said before, until they get too far into it. But, um, but yeah. And then with crypto, like you said, can you say that again? It was like, what, it, what is it that I don't know here? 
right? Yeah. So, so it's whenever somebody's doing something that you don't quite understand, right? And you're like, why would they be doing that? Yeah. The initial, like, like, what's the triggered thought that you have when that happens? Mm-hmm. And for most people, it's, oh, that guy's stupid. Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. And, and this, this is a trait of not most people, I would say. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's the thought of, well, hang on a second. Well, maybe he knows something that I don't, or she knows something that I don't, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, that is one of the most powerful rewirings of the brain that I think that people can do in order yeah. to, you know, grow. Yeah. It's a complete mentality shift. Like most people, they see something that they don't understand and it makes them uncomfortable and they run away from it. Or you can be like, huh, maybe like I should go poke around and Mm -hmm. check this out and see what's there. And obviously for you, you kind of uncovered something that's been like changed your life in a sense. Completely. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's, you know, I'm, I'm, currently running the business that I've wanted to run for five years. And mm-hmm. I know that I'm teaching information and material that could very well change the lives mm-hmm. of every single person that comes on board if they take advantage of it. And knowing that I could be that stepping stone for those individuals is like, like I I can't even fathom the impact of our program 10, 20, 15, mm-hmm. whatever years from now. Yeah. Provided everything goes exactly how we think it's going to go. The amount of money that these people are going to be making could be generational wealth. Mm-hmm. So knowing that I could, me and my business partner, Yoni, could be the stepping stone for that. It it, it honestly is like, it's hard for me to put into words. I know when I first found it, it was hard to understand. So that yeah. we can consolidate all of those five years of what we learned into an actual like process that's easy to follow. It's something that I wish we had. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really cool to see. It is. It is like to be able to kind of wake up and like that is in the back of your mind each day, pushing you forward versus, mm-hmm. oh, this is just about me kind of thing. Um, but I want to get into a little bit of crypto, web 3.0, NFTs, because I know a lot of our listeners, again, being like not most people, they kind of think differently and are open to things, but there's still so many people out there who are like totally mystified or terrified of these new things, right? They hear crypto, that's high risk. It's like a made up digital thing. It, you know, there's, there's all of these kind of like contrasting thoughts on it. So for someone who's like brand new, like, okay, let me get like a, a primer on it. Like, cause I think it's important. Like you said, you realize that your or one of your gifts was communicating, like being able to simplify complex things, which obviously crypto kind of falls into that. And so I I think for people, I've seen light bulbs go off. And I'm not I'm not a crypto expert at all, but I have like a kind of base working knowledge. And it's relating relating it to something that they know or already understand, right? Is hugely important. So like if you were to break down kind of some of the basic utilities of crypto, of Web 3.0, of NFTs, what are a couple of those main things that like some some person who's like new off the street and says, okay, like how is this actually applied to my life potentially? Yeah. yeah. So it the best place to start with that is blockchain, right? Because blockchain mm-hmm. is the underlying technology that makes all of it possible. And 
I think the best way to explain anything is to start off with the problem that it solves. Mm. So when the internet was created and then web two came out so that we can actually post things to the internet, right? That's the difference between web 1.0 and web 2.0. That's where we can like things on Facebook, where we can post to a blog, where we can Mm. actually input to the internet as opposed to just receiving outputs from the internet, from the website source. Right. So when that was created, every time we input an action, every time we do something on the internet, like uh, our blog article, our tweet, a Facebook post, our Facebook memories, our files on Google Drive, all of that stuff, it all has to be stored somewhere. Mm -hmm. But the internet doesn't natively have a way for you to store anything. There's no compartment within the internet that is meant for us to be able to store information or data, right? And keep in mind, data is one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable resource in the world right now. And if you don't fully understand why, one thing that I can say that typically resonates with individuals is that data is what po- is what powers artificial intelligence. Hmm. The artificial intelligence robot that beat the best grandmaster chess player in the world was only able to beat that chess master because it's been fed with thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of different chess moves that have taken place of different chess games. It was Mm -hmm. imported all that data, right? So that created a very powerful artificial intelligence. And AI is one of the most incredible innovations that we've ever had, right? So I say all that just to say that data is one of the most incredible, most important resources that we have in our world. And it's also highly personal, right? Mm. Because it's related to us, our actions, our email addresses, our home addresses, like all of that stuff is data. Now, back to the internet and its storage capabilities, there isn't one. So that's where we had third-party intermediaries like Google and Facebook and Dropbox and Twitter and all these different companies come in to say, hey, I realize there's no way to store anything online. You can just store that data with us. But then that's created a situation that's very unhealthy for the whole world, Mm -hmm. is that now they have control of our data and they can do with that data whatever they'd like. And we don't know what they're doing with that data. (laughs) Right. You know, there's been all kinds of scandals like with Facebook and everything. And I'm not going to dive into everything. You guys can go through and do research on that if you want to with the Mm -hmm. whole Cambridge Analytica thing. Um, Just to give you a starting point with Google. And um, there's been all these different data breaches. Uh, I think it was, which one of the credit bureaus was it? Um, Oh man, I can't think of it. But one of the credit bureaus was actually hacked. And then a lot of individuals, like, I I believe their social security numbers were compromised from that. And that's not okay. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, that's like one of the most important pieces of information that, you know, these companies hold. I know Sony had a hack where Mm. a lot of people's credit cards were compromised, right? Target had a big one. Yeah, Target. Yes. We, these very large companies are you are placing we place our trust with them to hold our data in a secure place mm-hmm. but when your data is held with one of these centralized entities entities just meaning businesses 
then that means that there's a single point of failure where that data can be compromised. All they have mm-hmm. to do is hack one thing and they can take right. that data and do whatever they like with it. Now, blockchain creates a situation where instead of there just being one place to store data, that data is stored in something called distributed ledger technology. So distributed means spread out all across the world. Ledger means just like a list of events that have taken place. And I don't think I need to explain what technology means. (laughs) Um, And so now we have the ability to store data online in a way that doesn't have a single point of failure. And it's also doesn't require trust. Because when you, the the big difference here is that when you store something with a third party intermediary, you're storing it on a database, a centralized database that they own. Mm -hmm. Since they own that database, they have read, write, edit, and delete access to everything that's on that database. And you signed your life away to them when you signed the terms of service that you didn't read. So you don't know what (laughs) that's going to (laughs) be. I'm guilty of that too. Yeah, we all are. I'd still be reading them all if I was still trying to read all those things, right? <laughs> yep. I think they make them long on purpose. Yeah, so exactly. They do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. if it said like, hey, we're going to send your data this place, can you give us the permission for that? Then we'd all say no. <laughs> yep. So those centralized databases, the people that own those databases have that access. Read, write, edit, and delete to anything that they want. They can do whatever they want with that data. And we don't even know what data they actually have of us, right? Right. Blockchain, on the other hand, everybody, even the creators of that blockchain, have the same exact access, which is just read and write. Nobody can edit anything on the blockchain. Nobody can delete anything that's on the blockchain because there's no central way to go through and do that. Mm -hmm. That's just inherent in blockchain technology itself. So blockchain is coming in to be that storage place on the internet. And when I say blockchain, there's there's multiple different kinds of blockchains. There's not just one. Ethereum mm-hmm. is a blockchain. Bitcoin has its own blockchain. Solana is a blockchain, right? So, and some of them have like different use cases, different speeds, different, you know, uh, functionalities to them. But that is the like baseline understanding that people need to have about blockchain is that we are getting a place to store data on the internet that isn't under the control of all these tech giants. And the other reason why that's important is because when the internet created a a reality for us to where businesses have a level of power that have never, it's never been possible before. Right. Right. There's never been a way for businesses to scale as effectively as they scale now, because the internet gave them the ability to have essentially robots, right? Yeah. To That's be what everywhere. software yeah. robots to do all these actions for them. Mm-hmm. And it also gave the ability to scale out to the entire world. Right. And while doing so, they can collect all this data so that they can serve us as effectively as possible to make sure that we are using their services. Yep. That's like TikTok showing you exactly what you want to see. Instagram mm-hmm. doing the same thing, right? Yeah. To give you the best customer experience possible because they know everything about you. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> So that those three things combined together has created these possibilities for these business entities to garnish a level of control and power that's never been possible before. 
And Mm -hmm. we're seeing that they actually have more power than even governments do. Right. And when I think that it creates an unhealthy environment, having these large tech giants have this amount of control over our day-to-day lives. It creates a situation where we just have to trust that their best interest is also our best interest, which Mm -hmm. isn't always true. And, you know, because if you think about it, Google is now the filter for what we get as far as answers to our questions is, is concerned. Yeah. They can alter that to be whatever they want it to be. Um, Facebook is the filter for what we see from our friends and people around the world, uh, our news source even, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a lot of responsibility over the, you know, necessities that we have in our life that is held under the responsibility to do what's best for the world by just a few companies. Yeah. So... Sorry. So one of the questions that I get, like when I kind of try to, like I said, I'm not a super expert on it, but when I try to explain blockchain, how it's kind of decentralized and not control, people will be like, okay, like, again, it's such a new concept. People will say, okay, like, well, someone has to have control over it. Like it's like whoever built it or that sort of thing. Like, like how is it immune from, from oversight essentially? Yeah. Yeah. I'll see if I can break that down real quick. Yep. So, Let's think of a power source, mm-hmm. right? So for a database, let's, let's envision a battery. And in order for a database to operate, there's just one big battery in one central location that allows for that database to run, that provides all the processing power for that one database. It's all in one area, right? Mm-hmm. A blockchain takes that same concept, but says, okay, well, let's just combine everyone's processing power from around the world, everyone's battery in their computer, if they will, and the their GPU to lend that processing power to one overall system. That's what the blockchain is. So it's taking power from everybody's computers from all over the world that choose to be a part of it. And then pays them for that power that they're lending to the overall blockchain. And that's done through software. So it's a combination of hardware and software coming together to create a distributed ledger. And it's way more sustainable this way because let's say if one computer decides to turn off, it doesn't do anything because there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of other ones out there. Mm -hmm. So... That's essentially how it works. Does that kind of make yeah. sense? It's it's almost like a pure democracy in a sense. Like if exactly like let's say in the US, instead of like there being a central government, like every single human had the same connection or amount of power, essentially. Is That's that, exactly yeah. Yep. Um gotcha. Yeah. So again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here because I know I there's people it. I know there's people listening who are like asking these questions, right? And so it's like, okay, but now I have somewhat of an understanding of the blockchain the blockchain blockchain technology which is kind of like the foundation or what crypto is essentially built on in most mm-hmm. cases right and so now it's like okay well just because something's built on the blockchain is decentralized does it does it have utility 
purely because of that? Or like, what's the utility? Like, can anyone launch a coin and that kind of thing? Yeah. Go so ahead. that's that's the thing is literally anybody can launch a coin, right? Mm-hmm. I could launch a coin tomorrow if I wanted to. Right. Um, would probably take longer to... Actually, no, there are... There are no code solutions to being able to build mm. coins. So I could actually have a code, uh, a coin up and launched in the next probably like 20 minutes, right? right? Um, but just because you're able to make a coin doesn't mean you're able to make pump value yeah. coin, right? So um, there are lots of coins out there and, and they go by shit coins, right? Where yep. what people do is they, they hype up the marketing. They're going to say, oh... You'll make so much money from this. We're donating a percentage of every transaction towards breast cancer, right? Mm-hmm. And then they pump up the coin. And since it's all marketing and no fundamentals, it drops. Mm-hmm. They get influencers to promote it. It was a big thing that took place. And so a lot of people actually got in trouble for it. But that is something that happens, right? But that's just part of understanding how to do research and knowing what's actually going on in understanding the fundamentals of blockchain and cryptocurrency that allows you to be able to easily spot that and be like, well, yeah, no, that's, that's a shit coin. I'm not going to invest in that. Um, But when you're doing, it's important to know how to do the research is really the underlying answer to this question, such as what is the problem being solved? How is it being solved? What's the solution? Does this solution make sense to me? And then it, it's a lot of the same things that you go through when you do when you study stocks. Mm-hmm. But one thing that's very different with cryptocurrency is that a lot of the cryptocurrencies out there, they are solutions. Um, they are coins that are used within a software solution. Mm. Right? So Ethereum is an example of this. When you buy Ethereum, you're not actually buying Ethereum. You can't buy Ethereum. Ethereum is just the blockchain, right? For developers to build on top of. Ether is what you buy when you're buying Ethereum, right? Even I say buy Ethereum. And that token is used within the blockchain ecosystem to pay for transactions that go through in order to reward the miners currently. Soon Mm -hmm. it'll be the makers once we move over the proof of stake ETH 2.0. but you, when you're doing the research and you find out what the problem and solution is, then you have to do more research and find out, okay, well, how does this cryptocurrency coin or token actually help with this? Is there any weight behind this token, right? Can you give um, an example of a token yeah. that you think has some like real utility? Yes. Um, let's see. So a, a good one is, is ETH. ETH is a great one. Um, Bitcoin is another great one for a whole other different reason. Um, The Brave.com, Brave is a browser, and it was created by Stephen Ehrlich or Brendan Eich. Brendan Eich, um, and who was the creator of the JavaScript programming language and also Mozilla Firefox. Mm -hmm. He created the Brave browser. And it is a cryptocurrency-based browser, right? It has a token inside of it called the Basic Attention Token, BAT. Mm-hmm. And the way this works is the the problem they're solving is the problem of people like you and I not getting paid for their most valuable resource, which is their attention. If we give our attention to something, that is the most valuable resource that we have because that is time, um, directed time, focused mm-hmm. time, right? Yep. So. Yep. We are 
currently being siphoned of our attention on a day-to-day basis by ads that are popping into our point of view that's taking our attention away from other things that could be more beneficial for us. So this Brave browser has created a cyclical system to where if somebody wants to run an ad to you, you actually get paid in the token BAT, B-A-T, for every ad that you see. If you don't want to see ads, you can turn them off and you never get any ads from the Brave browser. But if you do turn them on, then you will receive tokens for it. Hmm. And then you can actually use those tokens to then donate to different creators on the internet. Wikipedia is actually a partner with them. So you can donate directly to Wikipedia in bat tokens in as little as one click, Hmm. right? They also have an integration with Twitter that's done to where there's the like button, the retweet button, and the share button. And then there's the tip button now, if you're on the Brave browser, to where you can tip Twitter creators with Mm -hmm. these tokens that you're getting that are being cycled through the ecosystem. Almost like a Patreon or kind of thing. Yeah, but like native inside the browser and the bat tokens you're getting can be converted into real money. So now we're getting paid to browse the internet. Very interesting. This is actually inside of our program as well. One of the first few lessons of getting people to switch from Google Chrome over to the Brave browser. Gotcha. That's uh, I've heard of Brave Browser, but I did not know. And I've heard of BAT token, but I never had it all put together. So um, that's useful. I'm sure we could like, we could turn this into a six hour episode, trying to get into like the mechanics of all these things for people. And I know that's that's why you have your course and your community and all that kind of stuff to, to really deep dive on that. Um, but one other thing I want to touch on, which is kind of in the same vein that I find super interesting is NFTs. Because mm-hmm. NFTs are these things where... I think Board Ape Yacht Club, right, or Board Apes becoming like kind of the first one to really blow up, almost gave it a really weird relationship with the general public because like people look, oh, it's a picture of a of an ape, like a JPEG essentially is what people say, right? Like, why can't I just copy and paste that? Mm-hmm. Um, and why is that worth money, right? And so that kind of, I think, I think the way it happened almost can kind of like discredit on a surface level the whole like NFT utility and movement, right? Whereas NFT, which means a non-fungible token, is simply like a piece of code that can't be duplicated or replicated. Is that kind of a a very basic explanation? Yeah, yeah. Um, So what's your main question? So like, just I want to give people an understanding of NFTs beyond like a picture, right? Like tickets or like, yeah, you know, that's kind of like the number one utility I've been seeing. Like, oh, if you own it, it you can verify the owner and then yep. basically like a ticket or entry to something or any sort of contract. Like it can't be stolen or messed with, essentially. Yep. Yeah. So with NFTs, <clears throat> let me make a, a, a quick little distinction that seems to to help a lot of people. Um, so there's cryptocurrencies and there's NFTs, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are like, well, what's the difference? I don't get right. it, right? So cryptocurrency is digital money. NFTs are digital things. Mm. That's the most basic way that I can put that, yep. right? I like that. So NFTs and cryptocurrency both, what we call them, Bitcoin, right? Ethereum, Um uh, Board Ape Yacht Club. What we call them is just a label that we place on the digital code underneath it, mm-hmm. right? So these 
cryptocurrencies and NFTs, they have something called a token address. They're both tokens, right? A cryptocurrency is a token. An NFT is a token. Just one of them is fungible and one of them is non-fungible, meaning mm -hmm. that you can exchange them for other things or not, right? So with NFTs and cryptocurrencies, both of those tokens, right? They're both blank slates for us to be to attribute whatever value to them that we want to evaluate to them. So this is absolutely groundbreaking in the finance world, right? Because before then, what have we had? We've had the ability to have like pieces of paper that says that you have access to this thing. We have the ability to create stocks, right? And those stocks are very stagnant. All they can ever be is equity in a company. And the value of it comes from the perception of the value of that equity in the company, right? But with cryptocurrency, and NFTs, we can add whatever value to it we want, which creates a dynamic ability in finance and a level of creative creativity in business that's never before been possible before. Mm -hmm. So a really good example um, for to really dive into NFTs is I'll go over my Mona Lisa example. Okay. So mm -hmm. let's say Da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci, in all his great glory, decided that after creating the initial Mona Lisa, he had so much hype built around it that he decided, you know what, I need to make a bunch of smaller versions of this in order to really capitalize on the success of the Mona Lisa. And so he decides that he's going to make 500 different paintings that is all the Mona Lisa in slightly different variations. One of them has got a mustache. One of them is absolutely jacked for some reason. <laughs> One of them looks like Will Ferrell. I don't know why, but he does. And then after doing that, he decides, okay, now I'm going to sell all of these paintings. Well, well, wait a second. Why don't I give extra value to the individuals that own all of these and build a community around it? Me, Leonardo da Vinci, I'm going to host Da Vinci Con, where everybody that has one of these Mona Lisas can come to Da Vinci Con and meet all these Mona Lisa holders that all have this artwork together. Um, I'll make it so that everybody that owns one of these Mona Lisas has a, a level of ownership, a like partial ownership of the actual Mona Lisa itself, the original art piece, so that when I sell it one day, they can make funds from it. They can make money from it. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have an online community, even though we're back in like, you know, <laughs> AD. Right. Um, we'll, we'll have this community that meets, like, you know, once a week over in uh, wherever Da Vinci was from Italy somewhere, I think. Mm -hmm. And, and then that'll be perfect. That'll be Da Vinci con and we'll get people there. It'll be a great time. Now he makes all those art pieces and then he sells them all. All 500 of them are sold instantly. But then he realizes something that now people are starting to make third party transactions. The people that originally bought them are now selling them to other people. So now his ledger that he created with his hands of writing down who bought which ones no longer is accurate. So now he realizes that there's a hurdle. He says, well, wait, now I have to keep track of everybody that they sell it to so that when these people try to come to DaVinciCon, I'll know who owns what. Well, and then the other problem is like once... The Mona Lisa, the original one actually sells to a, a a collector or to a museum somewhere. Then how am I going to distribute the royalties to everybody that actually purchased it? These are all problems that he's starting to have. And 
Well, the other thing is, well, after I sell all 500 of these artworks, how am I going to have the money to continually keep up with hosting a DaVinciCon every single year? I'm going to have to sell mm-hmm. these people something else. I'm going to have to keep selling these people in order to keep up with DaVinciCon. Now, these are all problems that NFT technology solves for an artist, for a community uh, holder, community leader, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And because blockchain automatically keeps up with every single transaction that takes place with those third-party transactions. Not only does it keep track of all that for him, it also has the wallet address of everybody that owns one of those NFTs. Mm -hmm. So when the original NFT artwork sells, the Mona Lisa, if you will, then the royalties can then be distributed to all of those individuals automatically via a smart contract. So then he doesn't have to he basically gets to outsource the ledger, the keeping of who owns what. He gets to outsource the idea of having to pay everybody because it's done automatically through a smart contract. Mm-hmm. And then he's also able to make money off of every single third-party transaction that takes place so that he is now incentivized to build up the value of this NFT community to where people just want to be a part of the community. So they buy the mm-hmm. NFT. So then as the value goes up for that NFT, he now makes more money on every transaction that takes place that's third party. And then that allows him to actually host a better and better and better DaVinciCon every year without having to sell his community something else, Mm -hmm. which when you're selling to your community, it can have a shift in dynamic. Yeah. Where if they don't think you're selling them anything, then the intentions never can get misconstrued. Mm. So that is kind of a real world example of how NFTs can be utilized. And there's a million other ones, but won't dive into all of them right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think to get, to add my own example in there, it's people are familiar with the idea of trading cards or right? like sports cards. Mm-hmm. Right? Like a Michael Jordan rookie is probably the most valuable like basketball card or whatever. And they're rare because there's only a certain number of them. Right. And they're yep. attached to a certain, inf- like, if you copy that card, it's worthless. It's just a copy, right? It's not the original. And that's essentially what NFTs are, is like a digital original that can't be copied, mm-hmm. right? Does that make sense? But then also yeah. it can act not just as artwork, but as a ticket to get into a community or an event or something like that. And then a lot of times that's kind of the main utility, but then there's just artwork attached to it in a sense. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The 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 artwork, the monkey on the board ape yacht club the mona lisa in the example that i gave you guys that those are those the artwork doesn't actually even matter it's the mm. coding underneath that artwork yes. and the token address underneath that artwork that provides the value mm-hmm. and then the artwork is just the manifestation of that thing right yeah. to make it trendy to make it something that you'd want to put as a profile picture to make it something that you want to host on your walls somewhere right because yep. you can now buy something called a token frame i think tokenframe.com is the website where you can actually host your nfts on your wall and have them digitally animated so that you have artwork in your home that's moving kind of like what i've told is in, what i've been told is in harry potter although i haven't seen it so <laughs> <laughs> gotcha uh yeah, I can picture that kind of moving moving artwork. But um yeah, there's there's one more before we start to kind of wrap things up, there's one more topic related to this that I want to touch on. And that is I feel like people who are into crypto, the blockchain, 
DeFi, decentralized finance, tend to kind of have this mentality of like distrust of the government, of regulation, and that sort of thing. Do you find that to be true? And then how does that tie into kind of like where we're at as a society? Like how does how does this whole world, you know, maybe create almost like a layer between you and regulation and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So with everything that's happened over the last five years, um, you can it's very clear that trust in government all over the world has been at a rapid decline. Mm-hmm. Trust in, I mean, trust in third-party intermediaries like Google and Facebook and the big tech giants and companies in general has also been on a steep decline, right? Um, so these companies and these governments have a unique opportunity right now to where they can adopt blockchain and use it for good and use it as a way to promote transparency and build trust back up, or they can use blockchain to quite possibly do the opposite of that, which is a slight concern that I have about the U.S. government Mm -hmm. um, and other governments around the world, right? Right. So like like China, for example, they are, I think they've already switched over to the digital yuan, which is a central bank digital currency. So it's just, they've taken their... Chinese currency, the yuan, and instead of having it all paper traded to where they're, they're they're printing more of it to bring it into circulation, they've converted it into a cryptocurrency that's held on the blockchain. Now, the problem with that is that if you have your cryptocurrency on the blockchain, it's very convenient because you can mint more of those tokens, more of the yuan currency very quickly mm-hmm. um, and for much lower costs. Um, but when everybody's funds are tied to the blockchain and you own the blockchain and like from inception, you decided the rules were like only we can see everything that takes place on the blockchain. Other people can't. There's such a thing as mm-hmm. closed blockchains. Then that is kind of a concern, right? right. Of um, will, will the, does the Chinese government making it so that everybody can see what they're also doing with their own currency? Mm. Or are they just making it so that they can see what the people are doing? Right. And then with smart contract technology involved and with China having their social credit system, what type of smart contracts can they implement to where if you litter on the street, then your bank account closes down? Right. Right. What type of totalitarian control, what kind of Orwellian society could potentially be created from blockchain technology if used improperly? And That is kind of the side of things that scares me about the technology, if I'm being honest. Mm -hmm. Um, But just as easily, the technology can be used for good to promote a more democratized system. Like in the United States, it can be used to um, lower, it it can be used for the voting process in the United States where every vote is cast and placed on the blockchain so that you know it can't be altered and there's no actual confusion or even consideration that there's voting fraud, Mm -hmm. right? So there's so many amazing good solutions that blockchain can bring into a government and into businesses to increase the number one thing that's the most important in a relationship between a business and a consumer and its consumers 
and the government and its people, which is trust. If used properly, blockchain will facilitate trust in a way that's never been possible before in these relationships taking place, but used improperly, it can create pretty devastating circumstances for the democracy and sovereignty of the people of the world. Mm. Yeah, that's a whole nother uh, kind of wide ranging topic we could yeah. we could go down. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, I think you look at, you can look at it from that side where it's how the governments decide to use it or regulate it or utilize it. But then there's also on the individual level, right? Mm -hmm. Like being able to send Bitcoin back and forth and um, kind of the deflationary mechanics of it, right? Like where right now the US government and all these other governments are just printing money, printing money. Do you see crypto as being kind of a hedge against that? In a Absolutely. lot of ways? Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Bitcoin is is a hedge against inflation and it is also a hedge against um human nature mm. because the the thing with bitcoin is there's only 21 million of them that can ever be in existence right written in the blockchain that can't be changed it will always be like that no matter what and bitcoin is most easily compared to gold right gold is a scarce resource that we have to get by mining we dig into the earth and we get bitcoin so if you think about it gold is it's proof of work right kind of like what bitcoin is also proof of work and mm -hmm. it is you could almost say commoditized energy right uh, because we have to expend energy in order to get gold. And then we have this shiny object that we're all, we look at like, oh, gold. And yeah. we place this value to it that it doesn't inherently have. Gold itself is just a rock. Right. We just think it's a pretty rock and we yeah. can use different things. It doesn't have value because of its conductive properties. It has value because of its ability to be a store of value. That's it. That we place and it. Yeah. And it's been agreed upon and it's been agreed upon by people all over the world. But the problem with gold is that it's not a convenient store of value, right? If we want to transfer gold across the world, we have to do one of two things. We have to ship it via a third-party intermediary, and we just have to trust that it gets to that other person safely and, and with all the gold intact or like, you know, even all there. Mm -hmm. Or we have to use a third-party intermediary to like, digitally send a, I think it's called a CFD. I'm not too familiar with all of it. A contract for difference, which is essentially like a little ticket saying that you have the rights to gold. Hmm. Um, but both of those re rely on a third party intermediary. And then gold is not very fractional, right? Like what's right. the lowest amount of divisibility that you can actually have, send, receive and store gold? Like what is it like? I don't, I don't actually know, but it's not very divisible. Right. So, it's not very convenient to have gold as a store of value at all. Bitcoin, on the other hand, it doesn't require a third-party intermediary. You can transfer it across the world in a matter of minutes. You can store it on your wallet that's on the blockchain that costs you nothing. Fort Knox, the cost to operate Fort Knox as a system is crazy. They have thousands and thousands of military personnel that are guarding that place that all have salaries. 
They have a fortress there that was not cheap to put together. They have a flooding mechanism built in that can be triggered. If somebody goes in to steal gold, they can flood the whole thing so that they can't get out, right? They have all of these systems in place that were very expensive to, to protect and store gold, right? If you were to take all the accumulated value of everything that's in Fort Knox, I wish I had the number for you, but I don't. Right. That same amount of value, if stored in Bitcoin, would cost $0. It wouldn't cost anything. Mm-hmm. So if you look at like what makes good sound money, everything about Bitcoin checks the box as being far better than gold. And then the other thing is if... If governments are switching over to central bank digital currencies, over to cryptocurrencies as their primary currency, why would it make sense for their reserve uh, asset, gold, it's called a neutral reserve asset because it's not under the control of any government. Mm -hmm. It's just nobody, there's no gold president that's going to cause a war that (laughs) costs more gold, right? Bitcoin is also a neutral reserve uh, currency. And... So why would they want their central bank digital currency to be on their blockchain and their reserve asset to not be on the blockchain? It it creates an incongruency and a process that is has more friction involved. Mm-hmm. So what happens when we get to that point where they start to realize that, right? right. So you're starting to see where like there's so many realizations that people are going to start having about bitcoin about how much more effective it is Mm. to where you can get in now on the ground floor when people don't understand this stuff right incredible position Mm -hmm. which yeah i mean early adopters always have a huge advantage right Mm -hmm. and like going back to the tech boat like all these different things um the early adopters are the ones that reap the biggest rewards obviously the earlier in you are, the more kind of inherent risk there might be um, because of adoption. Adoption is obviously a, a big word in the crypto Web3 community. Mm-hmm. So like, do you find, an, I mean, that, that was also a great kind of explanation between gold and Bitcoin. I've heard parts of that, but that was very, very well put together. How, how frustrating is it sometimes? Like you feel, because this is a thing with not most people is... I did an episode way back that was called like, if you're not crazy, you're, if they don't call you crazy, you're doing it wrong. Like if, if you're not considered crazy by the masses, you're probably not really doing anything special or going to make a big impact in a sense, right? Like almost everyone throughout history who created something new or big was called crazy by someone at some point. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like you're constantly almost like shouting from the the rooftops and like everyone's ignoring you or writing you off yeah i mean where where i resonated with that the most was back in 2017 when i was getting started Mm. i was was telling everybody i was like i was like a bitcoin disciple (laughs) (laughs) i'm running around like telling everybody about the gospel of bitcoin you know yeah everybody's looking at me like i'm stupid yeah. You know, everybody is like, oh, all of this is bullshit. Like this, none of this makes sense. Like it's all, it's all just hot air that's just gonna disappear. It just I'm like, no, there's actual solutions. Like you, you right. gotta look into it more. Like, ah, everybody would write me off. Yeah. But there was a few people that didn't. And those were like my parents and some of my close friends. Um, 
uh, Yoni, my business partner, and John, who's our lead technical analyst inside of the program. They've been two of my best friends um, for a long time. And Mm -hmm. when I told them about Bitcoin and blockchain and everything and crypto back in 2017, they listened to me and then they dove in. And then they also became completely consumed by it. And now, hence, that's why they're in Mm -hmm. Insight Group with me. Um, But, you know, it, it used to frustrate me back in 2017 when people didn't get the full picture. Um, but that's when I assumed that everybody was supposed to be able to get the full picture. Hmm. But, you know, when you realize that it's considered not most people for a reason, and if everybody was not most people, then the world wouldn't operate, mm-hmm. then you start to be more okay with not being listened to, especially once you start to have the data that is, you know, giving you the confidence of knowing that you are actually right. Yeah. You know, because back in 2017, I was very much so like, well, maybe this really is like, well, you know, more speculative, not, yeah. not the thing, right? Because back then it was all white papers and people saying that they were bringing out these solutions, but there really were no solutions already put together. It was all just mm. false, you know, potentially false promises. And some of them ended up being uh, real promises that built incredible technologies. Yeah. And now today, in 2022, we are able to actually use those technologies that we were speculating on back in 2017. So for me to see that full progression of 2017, here are ideas that we have. And then seeing five years later, these ideas are executed and we're actually using them. And these different ideas have billions of dollars under the control of these different solutions that have been created. Mm -hmm. Um, Then it it's given me a level of confidence to where it's like, it, it's okay if all these people say that this doesn't work, that this isn't a thing. I see all the solutions that can come from it. So it doesn't even phase me anymore. But back in 2017, it it did. It, it, it was also not as mature as I am now. But yeah, that, that was definitely something that would get to me. But then I would always have to remind myself of like, okay, does this technology make the world a better place? Yes, it can. Okay. Does this technology create a more efficient society? Mm. And the answer was yes. And we've never had a new technology come out with the potential of being a paradigm shift that makes the world a better, more efficient place. And we've decided, nah, we're not going to do it. Mm. Right. That would be like us finding out about refrigerators and saying, you know, it would be real convenient to keep my food better for longer, but I'm going to pass on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of people think about that, at least for a certain period of time until adoption happens and people say, okay, this makes sense. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. and the idea that there's so much pushback from it mm-hmm. lines up perfectly with what a paradigm shift is. Yes. There was There's newspaper articles all over the place talking about how the internet's a passing fad. Right. So you have to have that. You have to have that pushback for it to be such a transformative technology. So those are the things that I would remind myself in order to kind of recenter myself to just kind of believe that I that I'm right about this, because there are so many things trying to tell me that I wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I totally uh, I hear that. You're always what is it's a quote by I want to say it's maybe it's Albert Einstein. It's like the greatest ideas are always opposed by the masses or by mediocre minds or something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true. Yeah. So I definitely hear that. And I have to remind myself that 
all the time too, because again, like not most people, I'm like, man, I have this message and everyone, um, everyone needs to hear it. But then I also need to remember like, okay, it's not, not for everyone. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, so, and, yeah. and when, and when you have thoughts like that and you think that they're going to conflict with like what the majority of people will think, or, you know, if, if it's something that you feel like might make you seem crazy, there's a reason why it's called 99% and 1%. If yep. your all of your thoughts, actions, feelings, and emotions were aligned with what everybody else's are, then that's then then you're not that's that means that you're not not most people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. It, a constant reminder of that is very important when going through life in a lot of circumstances. Yeah. I just I got the quote pulled up here. It is Albert Einstein. It's great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, I like that. that's one of my favorites. I know Einstein, he was a scientist, but man, he's got some great philosophical stuff out there mm. too. But yeah, so I know, I don't even know how long we've been going, but we've probably answered questions for people listening, but then also opened up a whole <laughs> bunch more. It's just one of those episodes. So I know you're an educator in this space. And I know, again, we could go down rabbit holes. There's a lot to it. My wife, who's in your program, like she's telling me, like, man, there's so much content and so much information in it, and uh, and she's been spending a lot of time in it. So, tell people a little bit more about that. Like, where can they find more information? What's your program like, um, and that kind of stuff? Yeah. So if you're looking to get a feel for the way I teach, um, well, hopefully this lesson kind of, you know, broke that down lesson. <laughs> I'm so used to <laughs> lessons. I've yeah. been doing it and stop for the last three months. Um, hopefully this podcast episode was a good taste of like the way that I teach. Um, but if you're looking for more, I have a good amount of reels on my Instagram. So my Instagram is Ryan Horst underscore R-Y-A-N-H-O-R-S-T underscore. Um, make sure you follow the right one <laughs> and, uh, then, but we do have our full one-to-one accelerator mentorship program, which, uh, Bradley's wife, Nancy is actually in, which is a one-to-one program where we have a full course curriculum with all kinds of different lessons ranging from teaching you what a glimpse of potential of cryptocurrency, NFT, Web 3.0 blockchain is like, how to be secure with your finances inside of crypto. And that's inside of our ironclad crypto security lesson. We go over the fundamentals of blockchain and cryptocurrency, starting from the beginning with Bitcoin. And then we, we teach it in the natural progression of how the advancement in technology has taken place so that you can follow along and see what was the problem that was created here? How was that solved? So that you can start to understand, like, what were the problems with Ethereum? How were those problems solved by other proje projects? How are they all being solved in, in the succession of how it's happened? And then we dive into DeFi. We give you guys the full understanding of what DeFi is, how it works, what are all the different Lego blocks that come together to create DeFi, decentralized finance, and why is DeFi important? Why do we need to, to diversify away from the traditional finance world that we have? And then we go into our section called passive crypto wealth building strategies. 
And this one is where we teach you how to actually make your crypto make more crypto, which is very important because if you're in the cryptocurrency markets, it's very volatile. So the, what's the best way to hedge against volatility? It's to create more of the crypto. So if your crypto drops 50% in value over the course of a year, but you're making 100% interest on it, you're now at a net even. You're, you haven't lost anything because you have doubled the amount that you had previously. And then when it does go back up in value, you have significantly more, right? So we teach different strategies around our endless airdrop strategy to our staking strategies that we have, liquidity pool mining strategies uh, to give you guys that way to create passive income in a way that's uh, actually passive, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to check on it here and there, take profits and whatnot to stay up to date with it. Um, but it's pretty much just passive. And then we have our active crypto wealth building strategies, which is where we actually teach you how to trade, how to read those candlestick charts, uh, to be able to translate those candlesticks of the Bitcoin price against the US dollar and whatnot into English so that you can actually read the story of what's going on with the collective consciousness of the world, all trying to decide on what the price of Bitcoin should be. So we teach you how to read that, how to analyze it and how to make future price predictions based on it and then teach you portfolio management and uh, risk management and all of that good stuff there. Uh, but of course, none of it is financial advice. It is all just ideas that we implement ourselves and you can take with that whatever you whatever you please. Awesome. Yeah, so make sure you guys, uh, if you want more, check that out. Check out, start with Instagram. And then if you want to uh, really get after it in the crypto space, uh, definitely check out his BCAP program. So yeah, we have yeah. a we have a masterclass video um, that we can give to your audience. We can put it in, in like the show notes or something so they can check that out. It's like a twenty to thirty minute long video that teaches a little bit more about um, crypto, and uh, then that gives more information about the program as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'll be sure to uh, link that in the show notes for you guys. And thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, before we officially tie things up, I got to ask you the one question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. And that is, what is your definition of not most people? Um, my definition of not most people. I would say the individuals that are able to take unreasonable accountability for things. Hmm. So the individuals that understand that whatever circumstance they're in, they're in that circumstance because they put themselves in that circumstance. The people that are able to completely subtract themselves from the victim mentality that the, you know, most people has, mm -hmm. um, being able to look at a situation where it's clearly somebody else's fault that something happened, but then being able to say, well, no, it's actually my fault because I put them in a position to be able to do that. Or I left myself vulnerable for them to be able to do that. Because if you come at it from the other perspective, then it's very hard to learn right? If you're constantly placing blame on other people or other things that are outside of your control or getting upset with things that are outside of your control, then it leaves your emotions, it leaves your future up to the decisions and actions of other people, which just makes you a victim. So I think the conscious awareness of being able to step outside of that victim mentality and take accountability for unreasonable accountability 
for your actions, other people's actions, and what happens in your life is one of the biggest determining factors of what separates people from being most mm -hmm. people. Man, I love that answer. It's not what I expected, but I love that the whole concept of extreme ownership and victim mentality is running rampant in today's society. And, uh, you know, if you, if you, things may happen to you, but there's a difference between things happening to you and playing the victim, mm -hmm. right? And if you play the victim, chances <sighs> of you succeeding at anything on a high level are very, very, very slim. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just a simple rewiring of the thought of like something happens to you and then saying, well, well, maybe it happened for me. Mm -hmm. Even though it seems terrible on the outside, what could potentially come from this? It's yeah. just that unreasonable ability to take accountability and shift perspectives uh, in your own mind of different things that have happened and being unreasonably positive at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Life happens. Uh for you, not to you. It's one of the quotes I most live by. So definitely resonate with that. But man, thank you so much for uh, coming on today. This was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed myself. I really appreciate you having me on Bradley. And like I said, I know this is your baby. So you don't want to just trust anybody coming on here. So it means a lot that you chose me. Very true. Very true. Yeah. Did not disappoint. So thank you again, guys, for those of you listening. I'm not going to say if you learned something today. I know you guys learned a lot today. I learned a lot today. So please do me the favor and share this episode with a friend or tag us on social, all that good stuff. So that is it. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. And always remember, don't be most people.